First Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from, the, from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again and a warm welcome to you all. My name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here in this church family, and it's great to welcome you here in our sanctuary, along in our, our fellowship hall, and especially this morning, those who are joining us in, in Fairfax. We are delighted to see God's kingdom work spread across our area and grateful that you have heard that call and gone to be a part of our church family there. We're launching, of course, on St. Patrick's Day, and so Rob is going to buy all of you a Guinness after the service. Um, You know, on on St. Patrick's Day, everyone everyone is a little bit Irish. Um, Apart from the Scots, we're still Scottish, okay? (laughs) Just want you to know that, all right? Um, This morning, we come to um, actually five chapters of the Bible. We're looking at Solomon's temple, the temple that Solomon built. And we read from chapter 8, but the section that we're actually going to look at uh, starts in chapter 5 and runs its way all through to the end of chapter 9, which means uh, we got to get going. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be together this morning. Church family scattered across this region, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray now, Lord, that you would come as, as we always ask, and, and just make your presence felt amongst us. As we consider uh, the gospel in Solomon's life, particularly considering the great temple that he made for your name. Be with us, we ask, that we might um, understand more of your goodness toward us in this text, and that it might have an impact on our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Solomon's temple. The sermon has one point. You ready? Here it is. The temple was spectacularly beautiful, and it gave people access to God. One point. The temple was spectacularly beautiful, and it gave people access to God. But we're going to make this one point three times. 
right? Why? Because this truth has layers to it. <laughs> this truth, this, this idea that the temple's beautiful, gives people access to God, and it has layers to it. And if we don't get our minds and hearts around these layers, then this sermon will just be a kind of bizarre survey of ancient Near Eastern architecture. <laughs> but if we actually do get our hearts and minds around these layers, we're going to find some needed joy, some needed purpose for life today. So let's look at this one point in three different ways. The temple was spectacularly beautiful and it gave people access to God. Layer one, let's look together at Solomon's temple. As I mentioned, the story is told over five chapters. I encourage you to open up your Bible. If you want to take one from the pew rack in front of you, turn with me to page 284. I'm going to give you a whistle-stop tour of this section of God's Word and follow along and even underline some of the, the key verses uh, that I will, that will read, read to us. Chapter 5 is all about preparations for the temple. Chapter 5, preparations. Israel, you will remember, has been a nomadic people. They've been a people who have traveled around in the wilderness. They've been living out of a suitcase. But now we read, see verse 4, but now, Solomon says, the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Israel have finally settled in the promised land. They're no longer battling enemies from without, nor are they indulging in any kind of civil war at this particular moment. They have rest on every side. They have settled. They have unpacked their boxes. And so, verse 5 of chapter 5, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. Solomon is going to build his temple, a fixed and formal building, a fixed and formal place to represent God's presence amongst his people. So before, as they wandered in the wilderness, they had a tent, and this tent represented God's presence amongst his people. But now that they're settled, Solomon says, we don't want a tent anymore. We want a temple, a place that's going to represent God's presence with us. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to have a building that's, that this goal is to, to represent God's presence, then this building, it's going to be epic. Forget HGTV, forget Extreme Home Makeover. This is going to be the most beautiful building you have ever seen in your life. And so we read as they plan that, that no expense is going to be spared. They import cedar from Lebanon. They quarry these great grand slabs of stone to be part of the foundation and the walls. They mine for uh, onyx and rubies and, and emeralds. This place is going to have great bling to it. And then we read that not only um, is no expense spared with the materials, but, but also with the workers. This is going to be an incredibly labor-intensive endeavor. So if you look at verse 13, Solomon drafted 30,000 men. Verse 15, he had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters. Verse 16, he placed 3,300 chief officers over the work. Here's Solomon's plan. If we're going to have a building that represents God's presence, we're going to do this right. We're going to do this right. Um, this place is going to be beautiful, and in so doing, give us access to God. So now chapter 5 comes to an end. Preparations have been made. Materials and workers have been gathered. And as we move into chapter 6, we actually find the building of the temple itself. So chapter 6 is about the building of the temple. 
The chapter is long and full of details, and it gives us a, a guided tour of what God's temple actually, actually looked like. So let's consider it together. We read that it's going to be a long rectangular building. This would have been a little smaller than the size of a football field, just to get it, get it in your mind. And the, the floor plan for this building is, is really simple. Three sections to the temple. As you walk in, first, entrance, first, first section is just this big, grand, impressive entrance. Walking through that into the second section, which is the, the sanctuary itself, which takes up most of the temple. But then at the far end of the sanctuary, there's a third section, a place that would come to be known as the most holy place, perhaps the holy of holies. And separating the second section from the third section, the sanctuary from this specially reserved holy place, the the holy place from the most holy place, hung a thick curtain, a thick, uh, beautiful, imposing tapestry that hung there to serve as a firm and final boundary from the sanctuary and this most holy place. Now, why did they build a building that had a separation in it? Well, behind this thick curtain hung the Ark of the Covenant. You familiar with the Ark of the Covenant? It's just simply a a rectangular box, not all that big, about four feet long, two feet wide, two feet high, covered in, in gold, but significant because throughout Israel's history, as they were a people that wandered from one place to to the next. It was this, this, this box, this rectangular ark that represented God's presence with his people. It's a piece of furniture, but it's important because it was symbolic of God's presence with his people. And this ark was put in this third section, in this most holy place, and that's why the covenant, the, the, sorry, the, the curtain hung there. Why? Because it was, a, it was another symbol a veil to symbolize separation, to to symbolize and maintain separation and distance between a sinful people and a holy God. See, only one person ever went behind this curtain into this third most, most holy place. Only one person, the high priest himself. And even he only went in one time a year, and, and when he did so, he only went in to make sacrifices for the sins of the people. So just imagine this temple in your mind, a big grand entrance. You walk into a, a sanctuary, a large room, but then at the far end, you see a curtain hanging. Behind that, you know, is the furniture that represents the very presence of God. Now, as we look around the rest of the temple, we would just be struck by um, the lavish beauty of it all. Look with me at verse Verse 15 tells us that the whole temple is paneled with cedar so that no stone can be seen. Verse 18 tells us that the cedar is going to be intricately carved with beautiful designs. And and then, then comes the gold. Look at verse 21. The gold. Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. Verse 22. And he overlaid the house with gold until all the house was finished. The temple had golden walls. It had golden ceilings. It had gold everywhere. Over 3,750 tons of gold 
went into the construction of the temple. You say, man, Solomon must have been unbelievably wealthy to have had all that gold. Well, do you remember what God promised him last week? (laughs) He said, yeah, I'll make you wise. And I know you didn't ask for it, but I'm going to make you rich too. And so here Solomon is with spectacular wealth, making this golden building. Um, Get this, around 2% of all the gold that has ever been mined in the history of the world was present in that building. Over $150 billion worth of gold in today's money. It's built with lavish extravagance. Lavish extravagance. It's a beautiful place, and it gives people access to God. Okay, that's chapter 6. Let's keep moving along. The plans have been made. The building has been built. And now chapter 7, it's time to furnish the temple. So I don't know, have you ever, you ever moved into a new home, perhaps a new bigger home, and realized you don't have enough furniture to fill this place, right? Well, that's what happens to Solomon, okay? He builds this spectacular building, and then he realizes, huh, we, 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 we got to furnish, furnish this place, and so he does so, and a building as spectacular as the temple required spectacular furnishings. Again, no expense is spared. Look at verse 48, for example. Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord. Verse 49, lampstands of pure gold, flowers, lamps, and tongs of gold. Verse 50, cups, snuffers, basins, dishes, pans of gold. On and on and on it goes. This building has golden walls, it has golden ceilings, and it's got golden furniture as well. It's furnished with grand opulence. The temple is spectacularly beautiful, and it gives people access to God. Okay, so chapter 5, we planned the temple. Chapter 6, we built the temple. Chapter 7, we furnished the temple. Now the temple's ready. Chapter 8, for the ribbon-cutting ceremony. Right? That's what happens in chapter 8. They dedicate the temple. Look at me at verse 4 of chapter 8. They brought up the ark of the Lord, verse 5. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. So they bring the ark, this rectangular box, to the temple, and as they do so, they make all these sacrifices. They have sacrifices that can't be counted or or numbered. They drench the ground with blood And then comes the most important part. Look at verse 10. Here's the most important part. When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. What's going on here? For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God condescends to his people He brings his presence to his people. Solomon had had built this building as 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 a symbol of God's presence with his people. And then God blesses this symbol by actually bringing his glory to it. And now, all of a sudden, don't you love it? The extravagant beauty of the temple is utterly dwarfed by the glory of God. The priests can't even stand to be in there. And Solomon... I love it. Verse 27. Solomon realizes the temple's too small. See what he says? But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. 
the day they move in, he realizes the temple's not big enough. And this isn't really a criticism, it's just more of a realization. Supposing the temple was as large as the cosmos itself, it still wouldn't be big enough for God. He is indescribable, he is uncontainable. The lavish, extravagant, over-the-top beauty of the temple is immediately upstaged by the glory of God. And so all Solomon can do is pray. And the main thing he prays for is mercy. Because that's what happens when you see God as he really is. If you can, if you can break out of our, our humdrum, run-of-the-mill, moment-by-moment uh, experience and, and fix your eyes on that larger horizons, lift your eyes to the heavens, beyond the heavens, to see God himself, you will pray for mercy. He asks for forgiveness. He even asks for forgiveness for sins the people haven't committed yet. He says, Lord, forgive us for all the stuff we've done and forgive us for all the stupid stuff we're about to do, right? Be kind to us. Be merciful to us. Solomon recognizes they can only have a relationship with God if God is merciful to them. He is looking for an assurance that God's presence is going to remain. And that's why verses 62 through 64, they offer up yet more sacrifices. Looking for an assurance that God's presence will remain. So that's chapter 8. The temple has been dedicated. It's up and running. It's spectacularly beautiful. And it's giving people access to God. All we need to know now, chapter 9, what's God's response to all of this? What does God think about all of this? Well, let's read verse 3. God says, I have consecrated this house that you have built. I have blessed it by bringing my presence to it. By putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. I bless the temple with my presence. And, and don't worry about whether my presence with you will remain. I'm, I'm the kind of God who is always faithful to, to his people. I'm not the kind of God that's going to leave you. That, that's, actually, that's not what you need to be worrying about. The, the real question is not whether I'm going to be faithful to you, but whether you're going to be faithful to me. Don't worry about me bringing my presence to you. Worry that you're going to leave, uh, your, uh, take yourself out of, out of my presence. And so God sets out in chapter 9 two really stark, clear options for his people. Option 1, verses 4 and 5. Option 2, verses 6 through 9. Option one, you see it there, verse four. And as for you, if you walk before me, as your father did, then, verse five, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Of course, I'm going to be faithful to you, but you be faithful to me. Walk with me and, and all will be well. We will always be together. That's the first option. But walk with me. The second option, though, you see in verse six, but if you turn aside from following me, then look at verse 7. I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. Now, let's just take a second to, to, to read from verse 7 down through the end of verse 9. And just, just think of it. All that we've said about the grand planning, building, furnishing, dedicating, expense of all of the temple. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, if you turn aside from following me, then I'll cut them off from the land. And the house, this temple that I have consecrated for my name... I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. 
Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they, the people of Israel, abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought this disaster on them. Here's what God is saying. He's saying, I am not a God of pomp and ceremony. This temple is great, but it is only great to the extent that it reflects a true relationship with me. Again and again and again, throughout the Old Testament and into the New, God emphasizes that what he desires is the heart of his people, our our hearts. He's not looking for some sort of outward performance. He's not looking for some kind of kind of show. He's looking for a genuine relationship with his people. So he says, follow me. Yes, this temple will be great. We'll enjoy it together. But turn from me and this temple will become a heap of ruins. Here are your options, people. Follow me and I'll be well. Turn from me and this place will fall apart. Well, which option did the people of Israel choose? Which option did God's, God's people choose? <laughs> we can answer this by asking another question. Well, where's Solomon's temple today? Where is it? You know, we'll all head to the airport from the sanctuary, the Fellowship Hall in Fairfax. We'll fly to Israel. Do you know where we'll find it? Nowhere. <laughs> nowhere. The temple is nowhere, nowhere to be seen. Five chapters of the Bible, about 20 minutes of this sermon, have completely disappeared. All that greatness, all that grandeur, all that opulence is now nowhere to be found. Roughly 400 years after the temple was built in 587, the Babylonians, remember King Nebuchadnezzar? He's the one, think of the book of Daniel, right? King Nebuchadnezzar comes along and raises the temple to the ground destroys it and all of Jerusalem completely. About 70 years after that, the the people build another temple, and this one's small and lame. It's so bad that those who remembered the first temple wept when they saw the second temple. And yet, what what, what happened to that that second temple? (laughs) Well, like the Babylonians before them, the Romans came through and raised that temple and all of Jerusalem to the ground. So yeah, the temple was spectacularly beautiful, and it gave people access to God, but now Solomon's temple, or even the second temple, are absolutely nowhere to be found, which takes us to our second layer, okay? Our second layer. Remember I said I was going to preach the same point three times? Well, first point, Solomon's temple. Second point for us, our hope we know, we know, is not in a building, right? And if you're thinking, is he going to wind up this sermon by preaching about our building expansion and how we all should give? That is not going to happen, okay? That is just not going to happen, all right? That's not where this sermon is going, right? That's not what this text is about, because our hope isn't in a building. Our hope's in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, layer two. Layer two comes from John two. Would you turn there with me? Page 887, if you're using one of the church Bibles. 
So Jesus shows up at the temple. This is the second temple, and the Romans haven't destroyed it yet. He shows up at the temple, and he finds people treating the temple like a store. They're selling animals. They're trading there. And so Jesus makes a whip, takes names, overturns tables, drives people out. And some of the Jews who are there saying, hey, what right do you have to do this? Show us a sign that you have the right to come in here and, and, and behave this way in, in the temple. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, oh, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 20, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. What a provocative statement Jesus makes to them. Think of the history, the, the amazing grand opulence of the temple and the, the great shame in Israel's history that it's then destroyed by the Babylonians and then this process, this 46-year process that they went through to, 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 to build this, this next temple. And Jesus says, yeah, knock this place down and in three days I'll raise it up again. They say, that can't be done. But then verse 21, but Jesus, he wasn't speaking about the temple. He was speaking about the temple of his body. So, verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, three days after that, that temple had been destroyed, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Here's the point. Jesus says, he is the new temple. He is the spectacularly beautiful Savior who's going to give us access to God. That's what Jesus says about himself. All that took place in the old temple, the five chapters we just worked our way through, all of that was just a picture of what Jesus would come and do. Now, in case it sounds like I'm making this up, turn to page um, 1006, right? Hebrews chapter 9. We've gone from Kings to John to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, page 1006. Let's pick up in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. So Jesus didn't come to an earthly temple that we had built and to the holy place, the sanctuary there. No, Jesus entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Verse 25, why did he appear in the presence of God? Well, it wasn't to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. You see what's happening here? The author of Hebrews is drawing a parallel that high priest used to go into the holy place bringing sacrifices every year. Well, Jesus doesn't, doesn't do that. No, verse 26, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All the cedar and all the stones and all the jewels in all the world are not as beautiful as Jesus. And yet he splatters his beauty with blood so that our sins can be forgiven. All that took place in the Old Testament temple, God's presence, sacrifices for the sins of the people, just pointed us toward Jesus Christ who would come ultimately as the sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And so what happened the very second Christ died upon the cross? Do you remember what happened? The curtain in the temple was torn in two. 
Matthew 27, verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain that had symbolized and maintained distance and separation between a sinful people and a holy God is now torn from top to bottom. Absolutely destroyed uh, from, from one end to the next as an immediate statement that the way to the presence of God is now open. There is no longer a veil. We no longer need to be separated from our God because Christ has opened up a way. He is the spectacularly beautiful Savior who gives us access to God. And believing that is what makes you a Christian. (laughs) Believing that is what makes us Christians. We don't gather here and say, aha, look at the beauty of our building and the number of our sites and all these things, and we have got ourselves access to, access to God. No, we gather here and say, were it not for Jesus Christ, there would be a thick veil that separated us from the Father. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have access to him. But Christ has come, and he has been the sacrifice for our sins, and so the way to God is now open. And friend, if you, if you don't believe that yet, you must you must, because it's the only way to be saved. If you don't believe that yet, you must, and if you refuse, then listen, your life will end in ruins. Option number two, the building of your life will fall. It might not look like it's falling apart right now, but but eventually it will. At the very least, at death, when you stand before the creator of all. The only way that we can have safe access to God is through our Savior, Jesus Christ. All sin must be paid for, all the wrongs that we have done. There will be blood, but it need not be our own. Because Jesus loves us and offers to be our sacrifice for sin. Okay, if you believe that, there's one more layer, okay? Preaching the same point three times, there's one more layer. The temple was spectacularly beautiful. It gave people access to God. It's true of Solomon's temple. It's true of Christ. And if you're a believer, we also need to realize that it should be true of us. Layer one, Solomon's temple. Layer two, Jesus Christ. Layer three, we are the temple. We are the temple. Uh, Sounds weird. Hang with me. Solomon's temple, we said, pointed to Jesus, the, the true temple. And Jesus tells us if we have faith in him, we become temples ourselves. So Ephesians 3 verse 17, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Then 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, do you not know? He's about to tell us something. Here's the problem. Whenever Paul says, do you not know, with this tone like we should know this, he then tells us something we didn't know. Okay? So do you not know? No, Paul. We don't know, right? What, what is this thing now that we don't know? Well, Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're a Christian, Christ dwells in your heart through faith. You carry around within you the spectacular beauty of Christ that alone can give people access to God. It's not a, it's not a grand building anymore. It, 
It's the church. We carry within us the beauty of Christ that can give people access to God. Wrapping up with two things. First of all, um, we just need to remember this. We need to remember that, that we're the temple of God, that Christ is with us, because we need to remember this as for, for we navigate just the struggles of life, right? Um, that we always carry within us the presence of Christ. I've come to believe, and Christians have walked much farther with Christ, add their amen. I, I've come to believe that, that the presence of Jesus is enough to steady you. That there is no pain or sorrow or struggle or change that he is not enough to sustain you through. Now, he doesn't do away with it all, all the, all the pain and the struggle, but he does enable you to face it all. Just really practically, whatever it, believer in Jesus Christ, whatever it is you're going through just now, the presence of Christ is with you and his presence makes all the difference. Makes all the difference. Secondly, though, as I'm running out of time, if we carry within us the spectacular beauty of Christ, if we alone now can give access to God, our world needs us to live like this. Our world needs us to live like the temple of God. The church has been called to live out his beauty so that the world will have access to God. We are his presence. We are his temple through which he'll save the world. And that's, that's what our site in Fairfax is all about. I'm not going to end this sermon preaching about Big Rock 3 building. No, I see a connection to Big Rock number 2, Fairfax. Why? Because we want that service to be a beautiful community that will give people access to God. And we want this site to be exactly the same. A beautiful community that gives people access to God so that lost souls are saved and disciples are made and hurting people are healed and Jesus is made real. Are we as a church living a beautiful life? Are we living together in such a way that we're giving people access to God? If you're a member of this church, are you playing your part? In worship, community, and missions, are you you living a beautiful life so that other people will have access to God? Okay, one point, preach three times. Solomon's Temple, spectacularly beautiful, gave people access to God. Now, nowhere to be seen whole point of these five chapters was to point us toward Jesus Christ, the beautiful Savior who really gives us access to God. If you believe in him, if you have faith in him, then point three, our lives can now be spectacularly beautiful and give others access to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we've spent a a good bit of time together walking through this section of your word, and um, we believe that you wanted us to do that. You you devoted five whole chapters of the Bible for us to understand what the Old Testament temple was, was like. 
But Lord, we also see the sweep of, of scriptures. Now, we've not been here this morning to talk about ancient architecture. We've been here to see how this temple points us toward Jesus Christ, our only hope for salvation, our only hope for life. And that he entered the temple, Lord, not the physical building, but, but the heavens themselves. Lay down his life in sacrifice that we might be saved. And now, Lord, we see not just joy of salvation in him, but new purpose in him as he reconstitutes the church to be his temple. His final words, Lord, to his disciples were, were not, hey, go build another building, but go and be my presence in this world. Go and live spectacularly beautiful lives that other people might have access to God. So, Lord, would we be that church? Would we be a church that's far more beautiful than cedar or jewels or rocks? but a church that looks and smells like Jesus and therefore gives other people access to God. These things we pray in his perfect and matchless name. Amen.